0: Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Tim Merritt. I just want to invite you to bow your heads as we pray. Dear Father in heaven, I just want to thank you that we can come into your house and that we can worship your holy name. Lord, I want to thank you for this time and just want to ask that your spirit be with us. I want to ask, Lord, that your spirit guide my speech. And I pray that um, the words that people hear will be from you and they'll be drawn closer to you is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The system works. Thank you, Warren. Thank you, Darren. This morning, I want to talk about the end goal. How do we make it through? How do we make it through? There's a fellow by the name of Stephen R. Covey, who uh, wrote a book about the seven habits of highly successful people. And... One of those habits, the second habit in his book, he records that to live effectively, we need to begin with the end in mind. So we have to begin with the end in mind. Now, how does that actually work? In my past life, um, I built and sold a few houses. And I know each time that I did that, I had to have the end goal in mind, Now, The very first time that I built a house, um, I probably didn't have the end goal in mind. I just wanted to get it up and have a covering over it and wanted to have it the way that I thought it should be. But I didn't really think much about the end goal. It wasn't facing in the right direction. The lounge room was small. We couldn't entertain many people. But anyway, from that we learnt and we added a few things to it. And as time went on... I reckon I got it right in the last place that we moved into. We had it facing the right direction. We had a nice outdoor entertaining area and we were very happy. But it was because I had the end in mind. And because I had the end in mind, I was able to start and continue on with that journey, not getting distracted, but being able to finish the project and have the end in mind. You know, the same goes for our spiritual journeys the same goes for our spiritual journey. So often we are in this life and we get distracted by everything that comes our way and we forget about the end. You know, I did a funeral yesterday of a 103-year-old lady and she always seemed to have, the last two years that I spent visiting her in the nursing home, she always seemed to have the end goal in mind. She even had a picture of herself in the car waving, and that was to say, I'm saying goodbye to you here, but that I will see you again. And one of the things that she always said to me when I would go, I would say, I'll see you in a fortnight's time. She said, No, I will see you when I see you. I will see you when I see you. What she was saying was, Don't stress if you can't get here, but I might not even be here myself. She had the end in mind and she was focused on that end goal. You know, we look at Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation is an amazing book and a wonderful book. And in Revelation, it also does the exact same thing. At the start of Revelation, we find that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. We find that we're going to be blessed if we read it, blessed if we take it to heart. We're going to find that the greeting comes from all three parts of the Godhead. And then straight away in verse 7, it tells us the end goal, that Jesus is going to come and every eye will see him. It wants us to stay focused on that end point. So every time when we go through, we see beasts and we see other things that can that are there to distract us, we need to keep that end in mind. When we think about this story, it reminds me of what happened in the very beginning of time. In Genesis 3 and verse 13, and we spoke about this a fortnight ago, about um, how we lost our dominion to the devil. But in Genesis 3 and verse 13, it tells us how that happened. And it happened because we were deceived. It was deception that allowed that to happen. It's one of the devil's greatest tactics. It's one of the tactics that he still uses today is deception. And we find in Revelation 12 and verse 9 that the goal is that the whole world will be deceived. In Revelation 13 and verse 14, we find that the land beast, his is that those on the earth, remaining still on the earth, will be deceived. The goal is deception. The tactic from the devil is deception. And when the disciples ask Jesus the question, when are these things going to happen? In other words, when's the destruction of Jerusalem going to happen? And when are you coming again? He proceeds to give them some warning signs of when that will be. We see some of those warning signs happening today, don't we? And sadly, some of these warning signs that are happening today are not waking people up because they don't have the end in mind. But four times in that one chapter, Jesus warns us not to be deceived. Deception is going to be one of the things that we need to be careful of in the very last days. Deception is one of the things. I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 13, because in Revelation chapter 13, we're actually going to do a two-part series on this starting next week. But I want to get in our minds a little bit about what is going on. And this is sort of like a prep into the next two weeks. So open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 is starting in verse 1, and it says Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear. And his mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. So here we find this beast coming up out of the sea. And what's it described as? Having seven heads and ten horns. Where do we find seven heads and ten horns? Daniel 7. Where we finished off before covid we find the different beasts. And here we find that it tells us that the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So here we find this picture of this beast in the last days that has similarities to what we read about in Daniel. Characteristics of those same kingdoms like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion, now looking back at the past. And we see back in Daniel 7 that those kingdoms that were around back then, they had their dominion taken away but they were still able to linger for a while and it's like aspects of those kingdoms are being in play here. But the part I want us to pick up on here is that the fact that in verse 4 it says, and so they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. The dragon, who is who? The devil? The devil is the one that's actually behind all these entities. The devil wears many heads and has many aspects to his deceptive ways. We're going to find out in the next couple of weeks about a land beast and a sea beast. But the question we're asked here is who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with the beast? Now we talked about that beast being a Pacific entity but I believe that question is, can be asked in respect of Who can make war against the devil? And that's brought out in Job. In Job, we also have a land beast and a sea beast. And the question in the first part of chapter 40 of Job is, who's able to capture this beast? Who's able to put a hook into it? Who's able to bring it out? Who's able to to play with it? And the answer is given in verse 9, where it says... Any hope of overcoming him is false. So it's something that we cannot do on our own. I say on our own because there is someone that can help us with the beast. I want us to go back to the story of Job because like I said, in Job we have a similar picture to Revelation chapter 13. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. And it tells us there, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that, no, and that man was blameless, upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. We're going to find out that his sons and daughters weren't probably as quite as holy as him because we find that Job is making sacrifices for his sons. And I'm going to come back to that thought a little bit later on. But here in verse 6, we find, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth in it. What was the devil saying here? The devil was actually saying, I've been roaming backwards and forwards on my earth and keeping control of it. I'm in control of that planet down there. This is my planet and I have right to be here because this is a universal meeting and that is part of your universe. So I'm here to represent planet Earth because they're mine. It's interesting that we hear what God says. Verse 8 tells us, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth? Blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear you for nothing? There's an important point that I've sometimes missed here. And that is that Satan had nothing on Job. Revelation 12 tells us that he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them day and night and here when he's asked this question about Job, he's got absolutely nothing on Job. How many people here can put up their hand and say, yep, he'd have nothing on me either? You're laughing, Graham, but I don't see your hand. <laughs> you know, we should be able to put up our hands. Because when we have given our lives to Christ, when we have confessed our sin, we are made right with God and the devil has nothing on us. But here I love this passage that he had nothing on him so he had to to use another method. And what was the method that Satan used? He said, you've got a hedge about him you have protecting him so well. You've given him so much that he can't even consider my ways. You're being unfair. And in this audience in heaven of the entire universe, we see God here on trial. God here being accused of dealing with the devil's territory. And so we find... That God says, okay, I'll let you do something to him. I'll let you take away everything that he has. Do whatever you need to do with his stuff, but don't touch Job. Don't touch Job. Let's find out what happens. Verse 13. And There was a day when the sons and the daughters were eating and drinking with wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen you were ploughing and the donkers feeding the side of them, when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone compelled to tell you. So here we find that the Sabaeans have raided and took away and killed his servants. Verse 16 tells us. While he was still speaking another also came to him. The fire of God fell from heaven. And burned up the sheep and the servants. And consumed them. And I alone am left to tell you. Verse 17. The Chaldeans formed three bands of raiders. The camels took them away. Killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came to him. The sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead and I alone and left to tell you. Whoa. Is it possible for one man to come across so much in one day? Devil didn't hold back, did he? He was on a mission to prove God wrong. He was on a mission to prove himself right. And he stopped at absolutely nothing. I want us to have a look at what Job lost. He lost his job. He lost his employees. He lost his pets. His animal, which were his machinery. We can equate that to cars and other things today. He lost his superannuation. He lost his dignity. And he even lost every single one of his children. What did Job do? What did Job do? Verse 20 tells us he fell on the ground and worshipped. How many people could do that? I know that I couldn't. I don't think I would be in a state of mind to be able to do that. What a man. What a man. How did he remain so faithful? How was he able to stay so strong at a time like this? You know, it's interesting. That when we look at the lists of people that did the attacks, the Sabaeans, we find God is being the one who accused the Chaldeans and the Great Wind also, assumedly from God. So Job is there thinking that God has orchestrated all this against him. But he still stayed true to God. So when the second meeting was held after this first meeting, God said the same thing to to prove that he was right. And what did the devil do? That's because you won't let me touch him. And so God allowed him to go that little bit further. And he gave him boils the Bible tells us from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. How many people have had one boil? I've had one boil and it's extremely painful. I can't imagine having them from the sole of my feet to the top of my head. And then the rest of the story is full of the devil's attacks on Job. But I want us to notice who the devil used to attack he used outside forces for a start and that didn't work. So what's he do? He now focuses effort on inside forces. So he gets his wife is the first one that said, man, you need to curse God and die. This is just too much to bear. So he uses the closest person to Job here on this earth. But Job remains strong. Then the devil starts to use his friends. For a start, the friends come along and they they were just so overwhelmed with what had happened to Job that they couldn't even speak for a whole week. But they were good friends because they sat with him for a whole week. But after that week, they couldn't hold their tongue any longer. And they started working out what was going on in their own mind and accusing Job of him being a wicked man. Who was he using? Were these godly people by the way? They were actually using God to attack him, using God's name to attack him, saying actually true things about God, but falsely accusing Job of it. And so here we get this picture in the first two chapters of of the devil being the one that orchestrated it but from chapter 3 onwards we see that it's just people and it's actually people from within I think about this story and I think do we do that as church members? Not in Lismore hey? <laughs> Not in Lismore but here we have this situation that uh that these friends of Job end up making it more difficult for Job. And my question is, how did he remain faithful? How did he remain so strong? How did he not cave with all this pressure from without, from within, and also thinking that God was against him? I know there was a number of times where Job was wishing that his life would just end. That the day of his birth would actually be forgotten about. But it wasn't. So, how did he remain faithful? I want us to turn over to Job chapter 9 and verse 10. And I want us to pick out some things in Job in this discourse in between the beginning and the end of Job. Because it reminds us of how Job stayed strong. Job chapter 9 and verse 10, and it says, He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. Here Job is reminding himself of the wonderful works of God and how superior God is to himself. He's reminding himself that, hey, his wisdom and his knowledge is nothing compared to God How dare he put himself above God, as they were suggesting, and curse God and die. So he reminds himself of his position. He reminds himself that he is a humble servant on this earth. Let's have a look at the next thing he does in Job 13 and verse 15. Job 13 and verse 15 says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my ways before him. I love that. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he does all this to me and I can't see why he's doing it to me, I'm still going to trust him. Why? Because I know he's far superior to me. I've seen his goodness. I've seen his love. I've seen his mercy. Why? He was actually making sacrifices for his sons and daughters. He knew about Jesus' coming and what that pointed to. Turn over to Job chapter 14 and verse 14. Job fourteen fourteen. He says there, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of hard service I will wait till my change comes. What's Job doing here? Job here is reminding himself of the end goal. He's reminding himself that there is something better. This is one of the things that helps him to get through. He reminds himself of the end goal. In chapter 17, we see this prayer of Job. So Job spends much time in prayer. And over in Job 19, verse 25 and 26, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on this earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh... I will see God. Again, Job is reminding himself of the end goal. He knows what is true about God and he's putting his trust in him despite not being able to see it. He can feel all these pressures upon him and he's blinded to what is really going on. Come over to Job 23. Job 23 and verse 10 that says there, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Here again, reminding himself of the end goal. Still thinking he's being tested and, 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 and going all through this because of what God has done. But he knows that God's Understanding and thinking is far superior to his. And he sees this as a test and he says, "I know that in the end, things are going to end up better." He reminds himself of the end goal. Over in verse chapter 26 26, verse 13 and 14, By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Now that's very interesting here he tells us the hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Who's the fleeing serpent? It reminds us of the devil, doesn't it? So Job is sort of under an understanding that the devil is there and attacks also, but he's not attributing anything of this to the devil. Indeed, these are mere the edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Here Job is is reminding him that God is in control. In chapter 27, chapter 27, it says, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the breath of God in my nostrils. My lips will not speak of wickedness. My tongue utter deceit. Here again, he's resolving to stay true to God. He's resolving to stay true to God. Finally, Job questions God and God answers him. And we don't have time to go through those answers, but it's amazing the answers that God gives. He actually gives 70 questions to Job about The universe, the the world that he is in, and how the eagle soars and the ostrich puts its head in the sand and how the seas are kept in their place. And and he and he basically says, Do you know anything about that, Job? Seventy questions. Job hasn't got an answer for one of them. But Job alluded to this earlier. So Job knew this information, but somehow through his trial period he lost that information. He lost the thoughts of what was really going on. So God reminds Job that he is in control, that he has put everything in place. And then we see God revealing to Job two beasts. One of the beasts was a land beast. One of the beasts was a sea beast. When we look at the land beast we see how strong it is, how powerful it is, its tail, its neck, its sinews and, and, and the awesomeness of this land beast reminds me a little bit of the land beast in Revelation 13. And then he talks about this sea beast and it's amazing the way he talks about this sea beast, Lothiathan Lothiathan who is Lothiaphan? Did Job know about Lothiaphan? Job talked about Lothiaphan in chapter 3. He just briefly mentions him as some sort of a spiritualism type worship that people use. He mentions him again in chapter 26 and verse 13 as the serpent. But the question is asked in Job, who can defeat Lothiaphan This Leviathan is is an invincible creature. And in verse 9, like we said earlier, any hope of overcoming him is actually false. This whole chapter is devoted to this Leviathan. And as the characteristics just reveal to us that this is actually talking about the devil, about Satan, about his attacks. And certainly the last verse in chapter 41 tells us that Lothiophon is who? He's the king of the children of pride. He's the king of the children of pride. Two weeks ago we talked about how the devil attacks us and how the devil gets us to focus on ourselves. To put eye worship in front of everything else we even do that when we come to church. I'm not going there. as that uh, Pastor Tim speaking. I get nothing out of his sermons or, you know, whatever. Why? Because we're coming for ourselves. I thought we were coming to worship God. I thought we were coming to share of ourselves, to encourage others, to, to yeah, to make it all about God and not about ourselves. And here we see this Lothiophon is the king over the prideful, over the self-worshippers. And like we said a couple of weeks ago, when we do that, we actually start acting like beasts, don't we? When we get to Revelation, we see this serpent is actually the devil. Psalms also identifies him as a marine, multi headed creature. He's a marine, multi headed creature. We saw the tools and the people that he uses against Job. He attacks from without, but now focuses his attacks from within. The devil is going to attack us in the last days, we know that. And a lot of these attacks are going to come from within. Some people get discouraged about that and think, you know, I saw this pastor doing this or he treated me like that or this person was like this or this person was like that. And we see those attacks coming from within affect the person's spirituality. Isaiah 27 verse 1 describes that God is the one that can defeat Lothiophon, this serpent And he will bring judgment upon him. Lothiophon being the king of the sea or multitudes of wicked people. The devil used the Sabaeans, fire from God, Chaldeans, a great wind. Then he used his own friends and his own family. And yet the beast was the one responsible for all and only god can defeat the beast let's have a look at the last chapter because here you know i've preached before and i believe that i once believed that job didn't know who it was was never un, able to understand who it was that attacked him but studying out this chapter about liphan i discovered that hey job was told who it was Job got a clear understanding of who it was. So let's have a look at chapter 42. And verse 3. You ask me, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know, which I do not know. Here Job is saying, you know, you are over all. I don't understand your ways, and now you're helping me to understand your ways a little clearer. And notice what he says in verse 5. He says, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He's heard him, but now he sees, now he gets a clear picture of what is going on. And what is going on is this great controversy between God and the devil. And he's just a pawn in this process. And the amazing thing is when we look through, we find that judgment does come on Job's friends, or should I say Job's enemies. But it's interesting what Job is asked to do. Job says to the enemies, you know, you've gone so far away from me that I don't want you to come with me, to me. I want someone to be an intercessor for you. And he says, I want you to go to Job. Make sacrifices. And we find that Job does this. And when Job prays for his friends, that's when everything's restored. Or should I say, when Job prays for his enemies, that's when everything's restored. How many people pray for their enemies? not easy to do is it but it enables us to treat them differently and enables to see them differently and yes they were on the devil's side and the devil was using them but they were still God's children and God still wanted them back so we've got to be careful how we treat our enemies everything was restored to Job When we join ourselves to the Lamb of God, we regain that dominion over the beasts that control our lives, restoring the image of God in ourselves, resulting in a more selfless you, resulting in a more selfless me. We've got to keep the end in mind, reminding ourselves that God is superior to us, resolving in our hearts as Job did, to stay true to God, to pray for help but most importantly to keep the end in mind.
1: He's got the authority I'm not divine But he calls me His child Sometimes I'm tempted To look around And see Sometimes you're terrible to his child I'm not worthy but he's calling me I'm not strong he's got the power Trust in Me by Marlita Fong. Alan Jackson will now sing, Only Trust Him.
2: Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. And He will surely give you rest by trusting Him.
3: Welcome to Answers to the Big Questions. I'm your host, Alan Sonter, and I'm glad you could join me. In the last episode, I explained what death is. You might remember that the death we see happening all around us is something like a sleep and is the result of sin, which is disobeying God. We die because we have been barred from eating the fruit of the tree of life. But there's another death, the second death, which is the wages of sin or the punishment for following Satan instead of God. For those who suffer this death, there is no resurrection. It is eternal death. Those who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour are safe from this death. I hope that none of you who are listening to these words will ever die that death. You don't have to if you accept Jesus. In the last episode, I promised that today I would try to answer the question, why does a good God allow suffering? The news bulletins seen on television or heard on radio seem to bombard us endlessly with reports of suffering, death, injustice, wars, accidents, disasters – and the cruelty of people to one another, and to animals as well. As we examine the events that cause suffering and death, we find that they can be classified into several categories. The first category I shall call the results of man's selfishness. Every time people do things that are intended to benefit themselves at the expense of others, they're operating According to Satan's principles, and the result is suffering or injustice to those who are disadvantaged. All self serving behaviour, from small acts of selfishness to major international wars motivated by greed and a grasping for power, are examples of people accepting Satan's principles and his rule in their lives. Religious intolerance is one manifestation of Satan's principles at work the suffering and death caused either directly or indirectly as a result of this selfish behavior has brought untold misery to the human race then there are accidents of all kinds happenings that cause pain suffering and death without the conscious intention of anyone these form a second category of events which cause suffering accidents can result from many causes, but God does not cause them. Satan is the author of the behaviour or factors that cause accidents. Natural disasters are a third category of pain-producing events. Some people call them acts of God. Really, a loving God does not do such acts. The Apostle Paul calls Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air, or the prince of the power of the air, that's in Ephesians 2 verse 2. It's Satan who causes natural disasters, as he claims to be in control of nature. The story of Job illustrates what Satan's destructive power can do when God allows. Suffering and death caused by sickness and disease make up a fourth category. Patients in hospitals across the land and millions of graves in our cemeteries attest to Satan's power to produce disease and death. Now, you will notice from my comments about the various factors causing suffering that I think that all suffering and death is ultimately caused by Satan, or at least is the result of people following his principles of living. But the fact that Satan causes suffering and death does not answer the question as to why a good God, if he is all-powerful, allows Satan to carry on with his devilish work. Surely God could stop all this trouble if he wanted to? And why wouldn't a good God want to? A university lecturer who taught me some years ago turned his back on God as a result of a terrible accident in which many innocent children died. He reasoned either God is all-powerful and could have saved those children, but did not, so he's cruel, or God wanted to save the children, but was too weak to do so. So God is either cruel or weak. In either case, I don't want to serve him. My lecturer's dilemma is one which troubles most of us at one time or another. The problem lies in the fact that we see only a small part of the problem that God faces in dealing with Satan and his rebellion in the universe. Right at the outset, God decided that he would deal with his creation according to several fundamental principles. These were the embodiment of his character, so he could not be the perfect God that he is Unless he consistently followed them. One principle is that love is the only motivation God uses or accepts. He does not force obedience, and if we don't obey him from love, he does not accept our obedience as evidence of our loyalty to him. A second principle he lives by is that he will not prevent the intelligent beings he has created from making their own choices. He has given them what we call free will, and he will not take that away from them. This applies to human beings on planet Earth, and it applies to angels and other intelligent beings created on other worlds throughout the universe. A third principle is that God deals only in the truth, never in lies. Satan, not God, is the father of lies. Satan became proud and wanted the created beings to worship him. When he rebelled against God, the welfare of the whole universe was at stake. Satan charged God with being dictatorial in his rule and of expecting all creation to worship him alone. Now it's true that God wants all his creation to worship him because only by worshipping a perfect and loving God can our minds be uplifted and broadened. To worship anything less than God is to cramp and distort our minds and ultimately to lower us to the level of whatever it is that we worship. So God knew that it was not for the good of the universe for created beings to worship Satan. But because God operated by the principles we have mentioned, he couldn't stop the angels or other intelligent created beings from believing Satan. And he would not do anything to put an end to Satan's rebellion that would make intelligent beings obey him out of fear rather than love. Satan is under no such restraints. He can deceive and coerce and he doesn't care whether he's followed out of fear just as long as he is worshipped and obeyed. God's answer to Satan was to send his son, Jesus Christ, down to this earth to show the universe that he is not a selfish and proud God, that he is willing to make the ultimate sacrifice to save us. Jesus was to show us that God is kind and loving and not a cruel tyrant as Satan has led us to believe. Jesus was also to show that he could live in this world without in any way accepting Satan's rule. But in doing so, Jesus knew that he would be killed by Satan if he did not accept his rule. So great was Satan's hatred of God. God and his Son were willing for this to happen because when Jesus died, he would die the second death for all those who accepted him as their Lord and Saviour. But for Jesus... There was a resurrection from this second death because he is God and he has the power over death. So here we have the scenario. The universe is looking on, watching to see what Satan's rule will be like. All, except for the angels that Satan has deceived into following him, love God. And they fear the results of Satan's action. Then Satan gets human beings on planet Earth to accept his rule, and he now has an opportunity to show what he can do. Satan gets people to live by his principle of selfishness, with all its attendant suffering and cruelty. He's also behind the selfish activities that pollute the planet and result in misery for millions. He uses his knowledge of genetics to produce bacteria and viruses which cause disease. And then he pins the blame on God. He encourages people into lifestyle habits that cause organic disease, which he then attributes to God. He also uses his power over natural phenomena to cause accidents and natural disasters, and then he calls them acts of God. And God doesn't intervene, because if he did, he would be taking away the free will of his created beings. God must allow the inhabitants of other worlds to see the results of Satan's government. If God stepped in to remove the injustice, cruelty and suffering resulting from Satan's activities, the inhabitants of the universe would never understand how bad Satan's rule really is. Perhaps the greatest single event that turned the minds of the watching inhabitants of the universe against Satan was what he did to Jesus when he persuaded his human followers to crucify him. The universe was shocked to see the length to which Satan would go in his fight against God. So the time will soon come when God will say, Enough! The watching universe will say, Yes, God, please put an end to the misery. We know you are a God of love. And we want to serve you forever because we love you. We can see Satan for what he is, a cruel tyrant who is interested only in himself. Then Jesus will come back to planet Earth, this time as the king of the universe. But God is not only concerned about how the inhabitants of the universe look upon him. He's also very much concerned about us. We're not just pawns in a cosmic game aimed at seeing who wins the right to rule the universe. He loves us and is very much interested in our welfare. For this reason, he often does step in and prevent suffering when his people, using their free will, ask him to. When God's people ask him in prayer to take a hand in a particular situation, without violating the principles he has set, God can say to Satan, My people have asked me to intervene in this situation, so I will honour their request and you must bow out. God maintains a delicate balance between allowing Satan to demonstrate the outworking of his system on the one hand and stepping in to honour the free will of his people on the other. Only God, in his infinite wisdom, knows where that balance lies. Just because we can't see why God acts in a particular way in any given situation doesn't mean that God doesn't answer prayer or that he is unconcerned about us. The more we trust him to do whatever he knows is best, the freer he is to put a check on Satan's power. And so, my friend, if you see suffering and injustice around you, just remember that God has to deal with an extremely complex situation that is bigger than just this planet. The Apostle Paul assures us in chapter 8 and verse 28 of his letter to the Christians at Rome that God will bring ultimate good out of every situation if we are willing to trust him and be part of his plan for the universe. That doesn't mean that we will always like what God allows to happen to us. But it does mean that if we continue to trust him, no matter what the situation, he will give us the courage to go on. He will use us to be part of his overall plan and will ultimately reward us accordingly. He will never allow Satan to destroy us or to force us to serve him. Well, that's it for now. In the next episode, I'll tell you what I believe the Bible has to say in answer to the question, what does the future hold? If you're one who wants to know what God says will happen, you won't want to miss the next episode. You've been listening to Answers to the Big Questions. I'm Alan Sonter, and I hope you can join me next time.